This episode of the Amy Podcast is being brought to you by High Power Labs, providing exceptional device cleaning, packaging, and sterilization validation services for over 25 years. With every major FDA-cleared sterilization process in-house, our scientists and technicians can assist device manufacturers in all of their validation needs. Welcome to the Amy Podcast, produced by the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, in partnership with the studios of Healthcare Tech Talk. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Amy Podcast. I'm Terry Baker. And I'm Kelly Hill. Kelly, Ebola has thrust back to the front of healthcare workers' minds, if not the world's, issues around sterilization and personal protective equipment. You're right, Terry. And to discuss these issues, a little about personal protection, but largely about sterilization of medical devices, we've invited a panel of three sterilization experts. The first is Donna Swenson. She has more than 30 years' experience in the sterilization of medical devices, working with both healthcare providers and the medical device industry. For several years, Ms. Swenson has been the lead U.S. delegate to the ISO Committee on Moist Heat Sterilization of Medical Devices. In this position, she actively participated in the development of several ANSI AMI ISO standards. She is currently co-chair of the Industrial Moist Heat Sterilization of Medical Devices and Protective Barriers Committee. We also have with us Cynthia Spry, RN, who holds both an MA and MS degrees in education and nursing and has more than 30 years of experience in the field of surgical services with a focus on sterilization and disinfection. She retired from advanced sterilization products where she worked as an international consultant in sterilization and disinfection. She has authored over 75 publications and two nursing texts. She has presented seminars on many healthcare-related topics across the world. Cynthia is also a member of several AMI working groups, including co-chairing the committee responsible for the ST79 Comprehensive Guide to Steam Sterilization and Sterility Assurance in Healthcare Facilities. Last but not least, we have Mr. Joe Llewelling. Joe is the Vice President of Standards Development and Emerging Technologies at AMI. He administered the AMI Sterilization Standards Programs for two decades and has administered the Secretariat of ISO Technical Committee 198, Sterilization of Healthcare Products, since 1993. He holds a Master's in Physical Anthropology and Human Evolution from the University of Tennessee and a Master's in International Regulation from George Mason University. Welcome to the show, Cynthia, Donna, and Joe. How are you today? Hi, thank you. I'm well. Good. Thank you. Everybody, the Ebola outbreak has refocused our attention on the necessary and appropriate use of personal protective equipment. But is there anything particular to the Ebola outbreak that concerns you with regard to sterilization of medical equipment and the HTMs roll in it. Hey, this is Donna. My concern with Ebola and sterilization has to do with cleaning of the device prior to sterilization. I think that Ebola has shown us why it's so important for people to pay strict attention to the use of personal protective equipment. In the decontamination area, I've seen people who are lax on adhering to the PPE requirements, things like They'll wear a gown and leave the back untied or actually wear it backwards and tie it up the front so that it's more comfortable than, you know, it is if they wear it properly. I think what we've seen with Ebola and how highly infectious it is reinforces the idea that you really can't do those things and you really need to pay attention to using the PPE, using it correctly, 
and putting it on correctly and then taking it off correctly, that it really is critical that you follow the procedures. I would echo what Donna says. Um, you know, we've been wearing personal protective equipment for years, and for the most part, personnel that are processing instruments haven't come down with any horrible disease, and the personal protective equipment has functioned adequately, even if perhaps they haven't used it appropriately. Now we have Ebola, which is very scary because of the mortality rate associated with it, and my fear is that people who have perhaps not been using PPE correctly but kind of got away with it are now in a situation where they really don't have the full knowledge that they should have as to how to put it on and how to remove it because it's not just, you know, well, I think I'll put this on. It's There are specific protocols for how you do it. That's my concern, that people may not be totally familiar with how to don and how to remove PPE. And there are, of course, procedures available on the CDC website, on the World Health Organization website, and also on the ARN website that go into detail about how to don uh, and also doff, which is to take off the protective equipment. There's been a little controversy between some of the guidance uh, put out by the CDC as compared with the World Health Organization and the, uh, mm-hmm. the AORN guidelines on the exact order that you're taking off the equipment. But it's incumbent upon uh, the HTMs and the reprocessing uh, personnel to, to really read those carefully and understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. One additional concern uh, that I have for the HTM community involves proper disinfection and decontamination of equipment that may be returned to the medical device manufacturer. It's very common for a a medical device that has a problem that may be malfunctions or or has breaks to be returned to the medical device manufacturer for repair or just for examination. It's also very common that that equipment is returned in a dirty state. It hasn't been properly decontaminated and disinfected. It is actually the responsibility of the HTM community and the reprocessors in the healthcare organizations to do that disinfection and decontamination before returning it. In our standard, Amy SD79, we actually do have an annex that specifically addresses that question and, and provides instructions for how you do that. That's one minor little area that the HTM community really needs to be focused on because chink in the armor, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Joe, you had talked about the disconnect, as it were, between some of the standards or guidelines that are being released from the CDC versus the World Health Organization. I would uh, contend that the media is a big part of that as well. And there was a lot of information coming out on the media about multiple layers of PPE. Would you all agree or disagree? Is it more vert that for use or is there is there some value to multiple layers? I am not an expert in the PPE in general. There are if you read the guidelines, they do do talk about appropriate PPE, appropriately fluid-resistant PPE, making sure you're using goggles and, and face masks in most cases. I think it's less a question of layers rather than it is appropriate personal protective equipment and making sure that you're appropriately covering yourself. Right, and I think I think the key is to look at the task. What is the task that you you're charged with? What is the task that you have to perform? And based on that, what kind of personal protective equipment do you need? What is the quality of it? Um, rather than, as you said, having more of it, making sure you have what's correct rather than just having more of it. And there's also actually been some information 
that having more layers is detrimental to removing it. It, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. makes it more mm-hmm. difficult mm-hmm. to remove the protective attire, right. which increases the chance you may actually self-contaminate yourself. Right, right. For sure. So speaking of that, Ebola and other viral infections are spread through direct contact with blood and body fluids, which ultimately become a part of biohazardous waste and create potential for contact. So several organizations, including Amy and AORN, recently released a joint statement on the processing of biohazardous medical waste. Why is this important and how is it applicable to reducing the spread of viral contamination and diseases like Ebola? That specific statement was a reaction to a guidance that the CDC issued that suggested that healthcare delivery organizations should be inactivating Ebola-contaminated waste using appropriate sterilizers. There's nothing wrong with that statement in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Appropriate sterilizers designed and validated to treat medical device waste do, in fact, easily inactivate uh, Ebola-contaminated waste. There's nothing particularly real robust about the Ebola virus. The problem is that most hospitals do not have those kinds of sterilizers, or certainly not all of them do. Most hospitals have sterilizers that are used for reprocessing reusable medical devices. The word appropriate was not highlighted well enough, and we were worried that hospitals would, in fact, interpret that as a directive that told them to process their medical device waste using their available sterilizers, the the ones intended for reprocessing medical devices. There are a couple of problems with that. Those sterilizers are not designed or validated to reprocess medical device waste. And, in fact, there's no guarantee that if a sterilizer hasn't been demonstrated to deliver sufficient lethality, it may, in fact, not sterilize a a dense load of medical waste. A a bigger problem was that in order to use that, you would have to uh, bring contaminated waste into the clean area, for want of a better word, of a hospital where medical devices are being reprocessed, and you run the risk of spreading that contamination to other devices or through the sterilizer itself. So this specific statement was just clarification that you should not be using the sterilizers that are intended and designed for reprocessing medical devices to reprocess medical waste, and that you should not be bringing that waste into the clean areas where medical devices are reprocessed. Right, and and S two seventy nine throughout talks about the need to separate clean from sure. you know from patient care areas and from clean clean from decontaminate from contaminated items. And in an effort to, to try to be super careful, I, perhaps also interpreting the guidance statement from CDC incorrectly. I could people would say, well, this is something we have to do. We haven't done this before, but we have to do this now. And as Joe said, you know, it, might, it would entail bringing contaminated waste through the area where there are clean supplies, which is totally inappropriate. So really, basically, nothing that, w- that was stated in, in a statement that came out is anything really dramatically new. It mm-hmm. just kind of reinforces the standards that we already have in place. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in fact, that misinterpretation did happen. Uh, we began receiving calls right away mm-hmm. uh, as soon as the CDC issued this guidance from hospitals where the reprocessing area personnel were being told to be prepared to do this. So. It was it was a misinterpretation. It's again, it, it's not that the, that the um, CDC guidance was wrong. It was just easily misinterpreted. Well, thank you for that clarification. 
Now, Joe mentioned uh, PB70, I believe, is an AMI standard for dealing with surgical gown and drapes that the American College of Surgeons made note of in its protocol for operations involving suspected or confirmed Ebola patients. Donna, you helped develop this standard. What is the standard's intent and what makes it relevant to the current situation? Well, the intent of PB70 is to provide information on the level of resistance to liquid penetration that's needed for protective apparel that's used in healthcare. Those levels are defined by adherence to specific scientific tests. The information the standard is supposed to be used by the manufacturers to ensure that their products meet the specified level of protection. And if they want to claim a specific level of protection, then they have to meet these specific tests before they can do that. That information then is supposed to be used by the people who use the product so that they can use it in choosing products based on an objective measure what the level of protection is going to be. Hmm. When you combine PB70 with a technical information report that we also wrote, TIR11, which is on the selection and use of protective apparel in surgical drapes in healthcare facilities, the user of the product is able to determine what level of protection they need based upon the type of procedure they're doing and the amount of liquid contamination they expect to be present. So with the two of them together, it should help the healthcare workers to choose the appropriate level of protection for what they're doing, and it will help the manufacturer to provide and give guidance to the healthcare worker of what their product is and whether it will do what the healthcare worker actually needs it to do. Hmm. Are there many manufacturers that have stepped up with the Ebola outbreak and offered such guidance or maybe even more support than they had in the past or are developing particular guidelines in response to this outbreak? Well, I don't know that anybody has provided any additional information, but all medical device manufacturers who produce protective apparel for sale in the U.S. market have to adhere to PV70. It's a standard that's recognized by the FDA And as such, if I'm a manufacturer and I want to produce a surgical gown and I'm going to claim a specific level of protection for that gown, I have to adhere to what PV70 says. I see. So all manufacturers who sell their product here are going to have a label on it that says what label of protection it is. I see. And that level of protection means they are complying with PV70 and what it says for the level of protection they're claiming. That's on every product that they sell. Okay. So there are a lot of challenges encountered in terms of sterilization of medical equipment at large, not just with regard to Ebola. And in early 2012, the Center for Public Integrity released an article on, quote, filthy surgical instruments, end quote, that some sterilization experts felt was alarmist. What are your impressions of the state of sterilization practices, policies, and procedures in U.S. healthcare facilities? Well, I'd kind of like to address that. I think that's kind of a loaded question in the sense that what's the state of sterilization practices? Well, it's all over the board. (laughs) I, I do think that in some facilities, the practices are outstanding. And in other facilities, there certainly is room for improvement. I think what's happened, and this is a good thing, that there is much more focus on processing of, of, of instruments 
for use on patients in surgery. And uh, we've had a couple of instances where we've been able to trace an instrument that has not been uh, adequately, appropriately processed to a patient injury, patient infection. So that has sort of heightened the focus on um, the need to process instruments correctly according to standards. Again, you have some facilities who do it well and some who don't. But we have the standards, we have the guidelines, we have recommended practices, we have these tools, these resources in place so that any facility that wants to bring themselves up to the highest standard, that those resources are available for them to do that. So we have practices, we have policies, and we have procedures. But again, it depends to a large extent on the individual healthcare facility. But I think overall, with this heightened focus uh, and awareness of the significance and the contribution of proper processing of surgical instruments to prevention of patient injury has brought all this to the forefront. And Mm -hmm. we keep working on it. I mean, we've got the Amy ST79, we've got other documents, many of them that uh, provide guidance. And there certainly the material that's in there is uh, reference to some of the latest research that's out there. And so we're doing what we need to do, I think. But the question is, are individual facilities where they should be? Some are, some aren't. So the modes of standardization are there. Yes. But like most standards, (laughs) not everybody has achieved them yet. But I think Um, it's better overall in the the sense that people are more aware of it and it's news now. And I I think there's much more awareness and that's a good thing. Yeah. Whether it was an alarmist or not, that Center for Public Integrity report followed a summit that Amy, along with the FDA, held in the fall of 2011 that addressed the same issue and did highlight many of the issues that still remain in ensuring proper sterilization. Mm -hmm. Cynthia is correct that if you're following the procedures and you're following the manufacturer's instructions, you're probably going to get a sterile product at the end of the day. As she mentioned, the, the big pro- one big problem is following the procedures, but there are other problems as well. We have been writing standards for sterilization for 30-plus years now, and the reason we still have to revise these and the reason we still have to come back and come up with new standards is because technology has constantly changed. 30 years ago, when you were cleaning or sterilizing something, it was likely to be made of glass or stainless steel or some uh, something very solid and very easy, you know, surgical tool that was very easy to clean. The surgical tools that are used today are often electronic. Uh, They may be robotic. They're built, made of materials that are much more complicated and difficult to clean than than what we were doing 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of what came up in that report was focused really on newer devices and newer materials that are being used to to create endoscopes or robotic surgery devices. In addition to having good practices on the hospital side, there are issues of, uh, of quality control. Hospitals have to make sure that when they buy something that requires a certain type of sterilization or or reprocessing process, they actually have the equipment within their hospital or within their healthcare delivery organization to perform that reprocessing. If a device requires a certain kind of chemical sterilization and you don't have that, then you're buying a device that your hospital isn't adequately prepared to reprocess. On the manufacturer side, there are issues around instructions for Mm -hmm. reprocessing. Mm -hmm. Um, Instructions that are provided are sometimes incomplete. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't provide enough detail for people to adequately follow them. Sometimes they're just wrong. Following the summit of 2011, we at Amy 
developed a, a series of work items that we wanted to address in our standards to address some of the issues that were raised. In particular, we have written a new document that provides human factors guidance for manufacturers when they are developing their instructions for reprocessing, which help a manufacturer to make sure that what they're putting down on paper can actually be performed by healthcare facilities and will also be clearly understood by the people doing the reprocessing. We have developed a new report on endoscope reprocessing that is addressing many of the issues that were raised with the difficulties in cleaning and decontaminating uh, reusable endoscopes. And we are continuing work on a guideline for quality assurance systems for reprocessing in healthcare facilities. One of the issues that was focused on was the, the lack of quality management systems within the reprocessing areas, and we found several hospitals that have actually implemented these procedures. They're working on our committee to help make sure that we write a guideline that will help other hospitals implement those procedures. One of the most interesting aspects of that was that the hospitals that have done this, and there aren't many of them, but the ones that have done this, have actually found that they actually save money in the implementation of this of a quality management system for the reprocessing, not just down the road, but actually while they're mm -hmm. implementing it, they're able to save money. And that's one of the big issues that hospitals have. Reprocessing is resource-intensive. And hospitals have to understand that the both the personnel and equipment required must be provided. So Donna, you authored a textbook about sterilization for HTM professionals called Basic Concepts in Sterilization Processes, Verification, Validation, and Qualification. Can you give us a high-level overview of what issues or needs that book addressed? Well, the book is about the principles that on which sterilization, verification, validation, and qualification are based. It's my intent in the book to provide an explanation of these basic concepts for both healthcare facilities and medical device manufacturers. I expect that the book will help those two groups to come together and be on the same page so that they're able to use the same language and concepts in discussing and understanding sterilization processes. It's also my intent that the book should help the two groups to understand each other's needs. The medical device manufacturers of reusable devices need to understand what the device reprocessor's concerns are. They sometimes produce products that are extremely difficult to clean, decontaminate, and sterilize. And when they do that, it's very difficult for the device reprocessors to follow their instructions. The manufacturers need to be looking up front in early stages of their design process and consider how is this device going to be re reprocessed. Sometimes they wait till the end of the process to do that, and then they come up with these things that are just almost impossible for the healthcare people to follow. But on the other hand, the healthcare people also have to understand the limitations that the device manufacturers have in telling them exactly how to run their sterilizers. In my opinion, it's imperative that the healthcare facilities conduct a product quality assurance testing and verify that what the device manufacturers' instructions for use tell them actually works at their facility. And it's hoped that this book gives a better understanding to both of those groups what's required for the whole process of actually designing creating, manufacturing, and then reprocessing and sterilizing medical devices. I don't mean to, you know, sound 
too ignorant of manufacturers' um, ideology and, and um, design uh, that goes into to manufacturing their products. But Joe had said at the end of the day, if you follow manufacturers' guidelines, you're going to end up with a clean uh, device. Most of the time. Most of the time. <laughs> My question, I guess, of course, as a clinician, as somebody who has dealt with endoscopes, uh, for example, in emergency services where we do uh, use our rooms routinely for endoscopies, do the manufacturers provide sterilization instructions as well? Or is this a wholly separate episode that manufacturers anticipate organizations are going to have a grip on? No, the manufacturer... In order to sell a medical device in this country, if it needs to be re-sterilized every time it's used, the FDA requires the manufacturer to provide the instructions on how you reprocess that device. They have to provide the instructions on how do you clean it, how do you sterilize it. Mm -hmm. And that's been a real issue because I I know of places that have from what I've been told, 30-plus different sterilization, steam sterilization cycles that they run Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of the differing manufacturer's instructions of what they're supposed to do. Wow. And that just is a process that is open for problems. Absolutely. And that's what part of the intent of my book was to try and get manufacturers to understand what the issues were for healthcare, so that they will start considering cleaning and sterilization early in the design process. Hmm. Traditionally, what they've done is they've looked at who's using the device and what do they want it to do. Mm-hmm. And they've right. designed a product that does that beautifully. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 The, hu- the human factors element that actually Joe had just talked about, yeah. Right. And the surgeon was happy as could be. Mm-hmm. They designed something that worked very well in surgery. I, I remember seeing a seven-layer tray of instrumentation that from a use standpoint was a beautiful design. From a sterilization standpoint was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So if the manufacturers have a better understanding of what the sterile processing people need to do and what the limitations are of their sterilizers, then they can design that into their device and come up with something that will satisfy both the surgeon that's using it and the sterile processing department, not one or the other. Yeah. And that, that's what my book is looking at the principles upon which the processes are based and how do the manufacturers apply that, understanding what the device reprocessor needs, but also for the device reprocessor to understand what the limitations are that the manufacturer can do and that they really need to do their product quality assurance testing and verify that their processes actually work the way the manufacturers said they should. Uh-huh. I, I think it's getting a little better, though, in the sense that um, I, I tend to believe that there's more communication between the people that are responsible for processing these devices and the manufacturer. I mean, I think for a long time they were kind of left out of, of the whole process. As, as Donna said, a manufacturer would make a device that was marvelous in terms of diagnostic capabilities, but then when you went to go and clean it or sterilize it, you came up with major difficulties. And I think there's more of a connect now um, or at least a recognition on the part of the device manufacturers that they need to speak and engage with the folks that are actually responsible for processing these devices. But to Donna's point, I think one of the key problems is instructions for use. There's, they're not standardized. They're all over the place. And as Joe said earlier, some of them are actually incorrect. Some of them are very, very vague. Um, they're just 
there's a lot of problems associated with them. But I think it's a little bit better, and, but I think it, and I think it's got to get a lot better, but I, I am encouraged. So standardization may need to start with the manufacturers themselves. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, not so much. I mean, each product is different, but standardization, for example, for the way that the instructions for use are presented. Mm -hmm. And what are the requirements for the different aspects of reprocessing? What are the requirements that that should be in the instructions for use for for decontamination, for sterilization? Like you can't say sterilize according to routine hospital practices or leave something vague like that. I think we need to really tighten up specifically what needs to be in that instruction for use and it needs to be consistent across manufacturers. The information will be different, but the presentation will be consistent. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's a critical, critical piece, I think. Do you also think a critical piece is having HTMs at the table when it comes to purchasing these devices in the first place? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, no, no purchase decision should be made until the instructions for use have been looked at. That should be the first requirement. Get the instructions for use, look at them. Are, do you have the resources within your facility to process this device according to what the instructions for use call for? That's the very first thing. Um, uh, a lot, uh, Still today, items get purchased because, hey, it looks like a it's a good price, mm-hmm. or somebody somebody went to a conference and thought this would be a wonderful <laughs> device, and then it shows up in the department, and you know what? It may be wonderful for diagnostic purposes, but it may be very, very difficult or impossible, in fact, to process within the facility itself because every facility has different resources. Yeah, that's one of those costs that suddenly creep up on you. You've bought this device. Everybody's excited mm-hmm. about it, and they budgeted X dollars for it, and now oh, whoops, we need some specialty training, equipment, supplies to properly um, care for and uh, sterilize this equipment. Or or it may incur a workaround, which is worse. And I, yeah, and I actually, again, going back to endoscopes, which I know is a hot ticket item in terms of proper sterilization processing, that's exactly what it does. It creates a workaround that ultimately probably threatens patient safety at that point. Yes, yes, puts the risk. Right, and to reinforce what Cynthia is saying, I've seen hospitals where they bought new equipment for surgery, didn't look at what was needed to reprocess it, and then found out they couldn't use it because they didn't have the right equipment. Oh, my. I, I know of a hospital that purchased something that required ethylene oxide sterilization. They eliminated their ethylene oxide sterilizer several years ago. Mm-hmm. How about they that? They have no way to do that. So now they're looking at, is there somebody on in eBay? <laughs> they can't do it, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and they don't want to get back into it. So they're looking at, okay, what do we do? Because we can't use this equipment. And so <laughs> it's imperative that, yeah, the, the HTMs and the processing people are involved at the beginning and not at the end of the process. Mm-hmm. Sure. And Donna, this gets us back to the necessity for a quality management system uh, mm-hmm. for your reprocessing operations because with a quality management system, you evaluate those inputs to the system before you make the purchase decisions. So. Yeah, I agree with that too. That I think it would be very helpful in healthcare facilities to implement quality, you know, quality management systems that follow the ISO guidelines on quality management systems. If it's ISO 9000, ISO 13485, whichever, but that's something that really needs to be done so that things do get done in a logical fashion. 
and then th- that is the intent of the current Amy Standards activity that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Right. And all of this speaks to how standards are evolving and getting better and also getting more complex. If you think back not that many years ago and you asked somebody uh, what, what standards they used and then you kind of hinted that maybe they should be looking at Amy ST79, not everybody was even familiar with that. And now it's everybody knows. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have not done a seminar where there's a, a person in the audience who doesn't know what ST79 is, but now you're asking us to go one step further and look at quality systems management, which is a good thing. But the whole, the whole profession, if you will, of processing instruments for use in surgery has just grown to the point where you've got to have critical thinking skills. There's so much more knowledge and the, and the, the information that comes out is, is just coming out so quickly and new devices are being developed all the time. There's just this huge, steep learning curve that doesn't seem to end. So it, it, it's definitely a process that's on the move, I would say, in terms of upgrading standards and policies and procedures and practices. It, it's come a and long way. Personnel, absolutely. It, it's changed from, you know, 30 years ago when it was, a you know, everything was, the, the variety of instruments were very limited. It was much like a manufacturing operation where you had the same steps and you did everything for each instrument. Now, with the complexity of the instruments and the, the v- variety of instruments, it's much more like a craft operation. So the people actually performing the reprocessing have to have a much higher level of skill and knowledge than they did uh, 30 years. Right. It's gone from rote work, rote task work, mm-hmm. to, to require critical thinking skills. Right. So we've talked about some of the challenges and frustrations when we're dealing with sterilization. What's been the most encouraging development or trend that you've seen in sterilization, and where do we need to continue to advance our efforts? Well, I think I mentioned this before, but I think the recognition of the contribution that should be made by the people who are processing instruments, there's a lot there's a lot more appreciation for what goes into that. I mean, at one time, I can remember going into a facility one time, and the, the supervisor, as she was known at the time, was on the phone, and she was really upset. She put the phone down quickly, and I said to her, what's the matter? As I walked in, and she said, they want to send me another failed housekeeping employee. Oh, wow. And I think that, that thinking was kind of like, well, anybody can do this job, and I think there's a tremendous recognition that it's not that simple, that you really have to, there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of competency that needs to be assured. This is not the job that it was even 10 years ago. It is really, and, and I think there's recognition for that, and that to me is extremely encouraging. Sure. Yes, there are still pockets where it hasn't happened, but to me it's a great time to be in sterile processing because I think it's on the move. I appreciate mm-hmm. you putting that forward. That's awesome. And Cynthia, the mirror thing is happening in industries, you know, and, and as Donna mentioned, it used to be that the medical device manufacturers looked at sterilization, you know, after they had already designed their device and were ready to go to market, they, they looked at how they were going to sterilize it. Medical device manufacturers now understand that it has to be done during the design phase. They need to begin considering how they're going to sterilize the device when they're putting the device together, when they're designing it, when they're choosing the materials of construction. And that is also a big improvement. And to add to that, I think one of the things Joe mentioned earlier was the Amy FDA Summit that occurred in 2011. Mm -hmm. There's a number of initiatives that came out of that that are being worked on today through Amy. Joe mentioned the quality system for sterile processing departments, the endoscope reprocessing, human factors that I find very encouraging and that 
seem to be getting better recognition and better understanding of what really is required to reprocess medical devices. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for those uh, thoughts. Is there anything else that you all would like to add before we wrap up this episode? Anything that we didn't touch on that you really would like to to express? Uh, Well, one thing we didn't touch on, we touched on very briefly, but I think we really need to look at flexible endoscopes. Please. In terms of, this is such a a hot topic, but not only is it a hot topic, it's it's such a significant area where we have to really get better. And um, I applaud the fact that Amy's coming out with a flexible endoscope document and there are other organizations working on these as well. But all you have to do is look at the literature and see how many articles have come out about processing flexible endoscopes. And then go and look at the devices, um, not necessarily the GI endoscopes, but the lumens in these devices are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and, and some of them are longer, and they're extremely difficult to clean, and you can't see down those lumens. Yes, ma'am. And so what I'm encouraged about is that there are companies, manufacturers that are making products that will help you better determine whether or not your device is clean because I think we're recognizing more and more that cleaning is probably the most critical aspect of instrument processing. If you can't clean it, you can't guarantee that you're going to be able to sterilize it. But there are now flexible scopes that go inside uh, lumens so that you can actually visualize down there and see if the devices are clean. Mm. And you're seeing different kinds of tools for cleaning lumens. So I'm encouraged that there's a lot of focus on flexible endoscopes because these are the devices that really really need to be looked at in terms of how can they be designed so that they would be more readily cleaned? Um, How can we help people do it correctly? How can we make sure there's consistency? So that's one one of the areas that I feel we really need to focus on and we are, but I, I think there's a lot a lot more work to be done in that area. Yeah. I'm so glad you put that forward, Cynthia. Thank you. I would have one last thought about the issue of Ebola and reprocessing. We've all agreed that the current that there are standards and guidelines out there that can help healthcare facilities address this current outbreak that should be reviewed if uh, there is any additional spread of Ebola. But standards and guidelines are always built on the accumulated knowledge of uh, experts in the industry. If the outbreak continues to evolve or grow, it is incumbent upon all of the people performing reprocessing to constantly reevaluate their procedures and constantly keep abreast of any new information or uh, new guidance that comes out because things could change as we learn more about the uh, virulence of this virus and and how it spreads. Donna, anything? My big thing, and I'm encouraged that we are seeing it, was medical device manufacturers needing to look at sterilization when designing devices mm-hmm. and to make sure that when they bring new people aboard that they're teaching them the right way and, you know, the whole process and what they need to look at it. Like I said, we've seen a lot of changes. Device manufacturers are doing a better job of figuring out what's needed. We see instruments now like Rangeurs that can be taken apart so you can truly clean them, which mm-hmm. was next to impossible to do before. So it's mm-hmm. encouraging. We are starting to see some of that, and that's you know what I would be encouraged to see if, if more of that happens and we get more of the sterile processing people involved to let the manufacturers know what they really need. So... You know, we all say that the Ebola, the current Ebola outbreak, as it were, or concern around Ebola, Ebola has really gotten everybody focused or thinking further about personal protective equipment or how we're sterilizing uh, medical equipment or surgical equipment. But 
really we need to stay vigilant on this as it falls out of the news cycle. Because to be honest with you, at the recording of this podcast, it's already starting to fade from the news cycle. Any thoughts about how we can keep this energy going or this focus going? This is what I think Ebola hopefully has done is made people aware that they really need to adhere to the protective equipment requirements, that there are serious consequences if you don't. I have seen people who think it's okay to put their gun on backwards because Mm -hmm. that way they can loosen it up and it's more comfortable. Mm -hmm. I've seen that in my own department. You know, and it's like that's really a very bad thing to do. What we need to do is constantly reinforce with people, hey, this has happened. Hopefully sterile processing departments are reviewing all of this with their staff and making sure that they do adhere to these requirements. And if their environment is not acceptable, then, you know, we have standards on what the temperature and humidity should be. They need to go to their facilities, people, go to their, you know, director, their CNO, their COO, whoever it is, and let them know there's a problem because people shouldn't have to choose between being comfortable and being safe. Because it's not safe if they're sweating bullets inside the protective attire either, mm-hmm. you know. It's not safe to work under conditions like that, but it's not safe to work without appropriate protection. So, you know, hopefully this reinforced that with people, but it's something that needs to continue to be brought up and continue to provide training and education and keep bringing it forward that, hey, if you don't fix this, this could be the next Ebola issue We'll have an employee get an infection because we're not adhering to standards and we're not doing what we should be. So it sounds to me like how we keep this perpetuated is is really through frontline staff. Right. Right. And their managers who don't take a back seat. Right. Right. Don't become lax on these policies yeah. and procedures we have in place. It's, it's kind of not- like hand washing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it's all, it's, it, that's exactly what we could equate it, it to. It really makes me think of a lot of things. There are a lot of professions where safety is an issue, and it takes somebody getting hurt sometimes before we finally refocus mm-hmm. on our electrical safety, mm-hmm. on our mm-hmm. you know ventil- respirators if your job requires chemicals and things like that. And mm-hmm. I guess this is just our particular opportunity or experience to help bring this back to the forefront. Mm-hmm. That may be because I remember back when HIV first became mm-hmm. known and mm-hmm. in reality, we had been trying for years to get healthcare people to adhere to hand-washing protocols. The CDC had guidelines out there for years prior to HIV, mm-hmm. and people just weren't listening. Mm-hmm. At that time, right? CDC was concerned about hepatitis. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Hepatitis is still a concern. But mm-hmm. people just didn't relate to hepatitis as being an issue and being related to hand-washing. Florence Nightingale, for crying out loud, talked about clean hands and how we spread infection and how patients don't have as good of outcomes if we're, if we're not taking care of our own cleanliness. So it's right. amazing. Well, Joe and Cynthia and Donna, it has been wonderful talking with you on this episode of the Amy Podcast. And thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Ebola and its uh, recalling the importance of sterilization and the proper use of PPE to our forefront. And uh, we hope that you'll be able to join us again sometime uh, as we learn about new developments and encouraging trends in the, in the uh, topic of sterilization. Thank you. Thank you thank very you. much. Thanks. 
And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, High Power Labs, an ISO 17025 accredited facility that has a dedicated staff using proven protocols in a state-of-the-art setting to help manufacturers get their products to market faster and with less FDA red tape. Visit High Power Labs' website at www.highpowervtls.com. And we'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining us for today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe via iTunes or the Stitcher app. And you can find more content on the Amy website, www.aami.org. For this episode of the Amy Podcast, I'm Terry Baker. And I'm Kelly Hill.